Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show, where once again we're going to look at the good, the bad and the ugly in the NFL this week, including some surprising quarterback performances and in fact, in the Chargers case, a surprising quarterback. Uh, We're going to talk about some slightly disappointing teams for the season so far and of course a week absolutely ravaged by injuries. All coming up plus the things we loved, the things we hated and our unheralded players of the week. I'm delighted to say that as always we're joined by editor of Gridiron Magazine Matthew Sherry. His book came out last week. There you go. There's the first mention. We'll make sure it comes a few more times during the show so don't worry we'll get there. Features editor Simon Clancy. Hey buddy. Greetings Willie. And Kaylin Kayla joining us from Bleach Report again out in the States where she was in Chicago to see one of those horrible injuries and as the rest of us just watched them stack up on TV and it was just oh just a devastating afternoon of it. It was wild. I will say just this is a random note before I get into injuries. Being this is the first game I was at in person and I didn't realize I don't know if you guys realize this but they play basically like a white noise crowd noise mm-hmm. 70 decibels but they don't there's no cheering there's no booing there's no change in that volume so i was really surprised by that because obviously when you watch it on tv you're hearing the cheers you're hearing the boos but if you're there in person there is just people talking is what it sounds like and i kept looking around like are they working like where are the audio engineers? it's like they just scored where's the applause but then I Googled it and I find out that's just on the broadcast. So it was really weird. On that very point, I'm going to go early with an unheralded individual this week, which is whoever <laughs> was running the sound tech for the Eagles game for the yeah. live broadcast, who inserted booing after the Rams' fifth touchdown. It was absolutely superb. Imagine being the audio engineer in Chicago, though. You'd have so much booing to choose from that it would be <laughs> yeah. impossible for us just to find normal white I mean, you could, you, could get, you could get the whole legs booing covered just from the week one game we were at last year, so for every uh, time absolutely. That's true. That's a great point. (laughs) Right, plenty for us to crack into, including we might talk about old MVP Mitch, as uh, nobody's calling him at this point, uh, (laughs) as we crack into it. But we're going to start off with the good. And I mentioned about some surprising quarterback performances, but also a surprising quarterback. I feel like we should start off with the Bills, though. Josh Allen, who it's fair to say we riled up a few Bills fans last week on social media. I know he wasn't proving us specifically wrong, but came out and proved the kind of NFL glitterati wrong. And maybe it's two bad defences in a row, but he looked damn good this week. He's proven nobody yeah. wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just too early. I can't. Uh, I'm, this may be the hill that I die on ultimately, but I've seen this. <laughs> I've seen this play out so many times before when people are ready to anoint somebody and suggest that all of the flaws that are pointed out, the media are wrong for pointing them out because they have a couple of good games. You know, Byron Jones left this game really early, so he was going against a a Miami secondary that was without its big star addition. And and somebody who me and Si discussed the other day played exceptionally in week one against New England. And I mean, we don't need to talk about the Jets. It's the Jets. I still saw him miss some some really easy throws. You know, I I'm not sure any of those issues have, have really been fixed. You know, the reality is that he's on what is probably the most talented roster in the NFL alongside the Saints. So I would expect them to win handily in their opening two weeks. And they've won the first game handily. And we're in a closer game than I think there should be against a Miami team. I apologise, Sai, but I think you'd probably agree with that yourself. So... Yeah, I mean, it's way too early. I mean, Phil Simpson is currently the league's MVP. I mean, have you watched anything that's happened with Seattle in the first two weeks? He's not even close to being the MVP. So, so yeah, for me, not really proven anything wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong over time, but certainly not willing to say that I've been proven wrong yet. I was going to bring this up when we talk about Kirk Cousins later, but it applies to this situation as well, obviously. Um I think the Bills look great for that Stefan Diggs trade. The Vikings, not so much. You really see what a number one receiver can do for your team and your quarterback. And and I was just talking to an agent the other day, and he said he used to be a scout. He used to be in personnel. And he was like, we would have this debate all the time. There are not 32 number one receivers in the NFL. So when you have one of those guys, it is so important to hold on to them. And as we see with Minnesota, I think Adam Thielen's better served as a number two instead of a number one. Diggs is that number one guy. And you've just seen, I mean, the Bills have the best passing offense in the league right now. They're leading the league in passing yards. 
Diggs has really seemed to make a difference for Allen and for that offense as a whole. So I think that trade has really helped them. And I'm kind of a fan of Josh Allen right now. Like I'm buying it. I'm like Matthew, I'm, I'm here for it. The point you make about Diggs is really interesting actually, because I think it underlines the importance of a great route runner. And you look at, you know, Keenan Allen, you look at Michael Thomas, you look at all the best route runners in the NFL. They are the best receivers in the NFL. You know, Diggs just offers something so unique. And Noah Igbenogane, who was the Dolphins' first round, third first round pick, who was tasked with covering Diggs at the weekend, said it was the most difficult game he'd ever had because he just had never played against a receiver with that ability off the line. His, his ability to separate, you look at Devontae Adams is another one who just gave Jeff Okuda fits all day. As for Allen, I obviously was forced to watch the game because of the Dolphins, so I was forced to watch Allen. Um, and actually, to give him credit, you know, the thing I, I always rail against is an inaccurate quarterback in college does not become an accurate quarterback in the NFL. It very, very rarely happens. Accuracy is one of the things you really can't improve massively on. And his, his accuracy has been pretty horrendous for a top 10 quarterback. But what I will say that is that he was very good. He made a number of wow throws. The Dolphins weren't able to get pressure on him. So it did give him an awful lot of time in the pocket. But he made two or three throws where you just thought, okay, it does feel a little bit like you're getting it. And he was seven of eight for 264 yards of throws 20 yards down the field on Sunday. You look at Drew Brees last night, who didn't even attempt to pass over 20 yards. So I think there's hope for Allen, but I'm with Matt. I would think that, you know, I'm urging caution. I'm certainly not buying any Josh Allen stocks. The, the other today. thing on, on Allen and the Bills is Brian Dable has been one of the best coordinators in the league for the last couple of years and, and is probably going to be high on head coaching lists next year. I think generally they do a great job of masking Alan's flaws. What I love is that Sherry has already claimed that that's the hill he's going to die on. And yet now we're going to talk about Jared Goff, another quarterback <laughs> who he refuses to at any point dead. except, yeah, a hill he might Good already hills. be dead on. So I'm going to come to you first, Sherry. Look, when you talked about the accuracy from college to the NFL, we know that Jared Goff can make tight window throws. We know that he can be accurate when everything around him is suited to him. Has it just been a case that everything around him has been suited to him the last couple of days? Is this all McVeigh, or does he deserve some love himself? I mean, he's incredibly accurate, Goff. That's the one thing I would say. Like, these quarterbacks who I would usually criticise, like Josh Allen, who I just don't think are ever going to be good enough, their main flaw is usually accuracy. That is not Jared Goff's main flaw. Goff's main flaw is that as soon as the first or second read isn't there, it's, it's a disaster. And you can watch it breaking down literally as it happens. You know, I think the Rams have one of the best offensive line coaches in the league and one of the best offensive schemers in the league as the head coach. And, you know, we saw that breakdown last year. And I think last year illustrated how quickly it can break down for the Rams if they don't get the scheme and absolutely right. But, I mean, he's in a great situation because he's surrounded by generational offensive schema in McVeigh. And I, and I think McVeigh has done as good a job as anybody in the league in the first two weeks coaching. So I think Jared Goff is what he is. You can obviously win with him. He's been to a Super Bowl. I don't think he'll ever be the reason that the Rams win because I think he's in a very fortunate position of being surrounded by an exceptional coach. And I put a lot of the credit from what I've seen down to the Rams and, and that offensive coach and staff, who I think is outstanding. We talked about last week, he's getting the ball out so much quicker. And it touches on that point, Matt, that you just made about going to that third read has always been a difficulty for him. I think that's part of the reason why they were happy getting rid of Brandon Cooks. You look at Cooper Cup and Robert Woods, they are outstanding receivers in terms of getting immediate separation. The ball comes out so quickly that he almost doesn't have to get to that point. Cooks obviously much quicker and therefore the vast majority of his routes were at that intermediate and deeper level. Cup and Woods work so well in that sort of intermediate area. And I think what McVeigh has done is essentially just tailor everything that, that he does well and now you're seeing that on a Sunday. They've got rid of those late switch releases, which the receivers were playing last year and the year before when he, when he struggled. That's all gone from the offense. And I credit McVeigh and Goff to a great extent to actually look at their faults that he has and, and change them. I think it was really interesting to see the matchup Sunday, which was Goff against Wentz, obviously his draft classmate there, who it feels, at least in that game, that the, the tables had turned on both of them. Whereas, you know, we all thought Goff was, and he may still be, you know, your average game manager. He was never seen as electric as Carson Wentz, but we've seen the first few games this season 
one we're going to talk about later too, but Wentz is really struggling. And so I thought it really kind of made Goff stand out in a way when he was facing off with this draft classmate of his that had always kind of had the upper hand. So that was interesting. And I do think, you know, he's looking a lot better. I think he threw 16 interceptions last year. And in the first half against Philadelphia, he was incredibly accurate, 12 of 12 for 145 and two touchdown passes just in that first half. So I think it's becoming clear how important Frank Reich was in that season at Philadelphia. I mean, I, and I think that's mm-hmm. become clear over the last couple of years. You know, one of my unheralded performer actually was going to be Aaron Cromer, who is the Rams' run game coordinator slash O-line guy, because I think he is one of the underrated, you know, we talk about, I think it's Mike McDaniel in San Francisco. There are lots of these guys who nobody knows about around the league who are massively important to coaching staffs. And sometimes we focus only on the head coach. But as we've seen with Doug Peterson and Frank Wright, it's really about that mix, isn't it? The importance of coaching illustrated in, in the two arcs of those careers, potentially. Jeff McLean, who covers the Eagles, had a really interesting story a couple of weeks ago, actually, about how there's too many cooks in the kitchen on the Eagles offensive staff this year. And I'm going to forget everybody that they've hired, so I'm not even going to try to name them all, but... There was essentially three or four voices now in Wentz's ear and the distribution of power of in terms of who was calling the plays and who was in charge of the quarterbacks and who was working with Wentz and who was working with Hertz and who was working with all these different areas. They had just added a lot of people. And basically the point of the story was that this was going to provide some challenges this year just because there were all of these people contributing to the offense. Right, let's, um, well, uh, we're going to talk injuries in a bit more depth in a little while, but one injury that happened before he even got on the field was that to to Rod Taylor. And apparently, according to Anthony Lynn, he is still the starting quarterback of the Chargers. Maybe a decision or an announcement that was as weird a decision as not going for it on fourth and one. Justin Herbert comes out. I think he was the guy that a lot of us looked at from the first round, other than Jordan Love, and thought, that's the rawest talent, maybe the guy that's going to redshirt the longest. And he came in and looked really good against the Super Bowl champions. Yeah, I thought he played really well. And I've been a huge critic of his uh, Oregon for a number of reasons. I know Kalen did a really interesting story with his family uh, and some of his coaches and stuff last season in the run-up to the draft. But, you know, I watched almost every throw that he made at Oregon because I'm sad. Um, <laughs> and also because, you know, there was a, a lot of talk that the Dolphins would, would be drafting him. And I spoke to a number of people. I spoke to Scott McLuhan, who was working for one of the teams ahead of the draft. And he gave me a really interesting insight into Herbert and his mindset and talked to some people up at Oregon. You know, even if you watch Hard Knocks, it was clear that the coaching staff really liked him, but he was very quiet. And that was something that, you know, he was a kid who was brought up in that in Corvallis, had never really left. And people were worried about what would happen if he got out of Corvallis and, you know, into a place like Miami, into a place like New York, one of those, you know, big cities and the effect that that would have. But I thought he was really impressive. I mean, he gave, he took a lot of what the defense gave him, certainly in the first half. He made a couple of absolutely fantastic throws. There was one to, to Keenan Allen down the seam in the, in the third quarter, I think, that was just an absolute wow throw. But for me, I think the biggest moment, and probably the biggest moment for the team, was when he took on the Chiefs linebacker <laughs> down on the sideline and got absolutely clobbered. And he was straight up to his feet. The Chiefs linebacker, whose name completely escapes me, it took him five or six seconds to, to get up. And for, for a team on the sideline to be fearless, which he was both as a passer, but also taking on defenders, I thought that said an awful lot about Justin Herbert. And I, I was very impressed with what he did. It was Damian Wilson. And if you haven't Damian read Wilson, about it sorry. since, Damian Wilson knocked himself clean out during that yeah. challenge. <laughs> I had to yeah. go out of the game. I don't think he even returned. To, did he no. return to the game? Yeah. I had to go into protocol and then never came back in crazy well, i have a lot i have a lot to say about justin herbert i'm writing about it this week so i Kaylin loves justin herbert the way that yeah. works, old white head i'm a big fan about justin herbert but i do think it's really interesting like the decision facing anthony lynn that he's already said well the thing i'll point out first is that he's been very careful with how he says this he says if tyra taylor is 100 healthy he's our guy so my prediction for this upcoming Panthers game is, you know, we don't know a lot about what happened to Tyrod. He had, he was on their injury report the Friday before the game. He practiced fully, but he was on the injury report with a rib injury. So there's something that he, he had an underlying rib injury, and then he had some reaction to the painkillers. So he originally was supposed to be able to play through that rib injury, which is why he was getting the injection in the first place. But I just have a feeling he's not going to be 100% healthy because now they don't have a reason to push him through this injury to get him back on the field. They've seen they have a very capable backup quarterback in Justin Herbert. And that's exactly what Anthony Lynn said. He said, 
because I joined their press conference yesterday and I kind of pushed him on, you know, why is Tyrod still at your starter? Can you explain that a little bit more? Because you've got, you're going to have a lot of fans that are wondering why this rookie who threw for 311 yards completed 66% of his passes, 14 yards per catch. Like, come on, they're going to be wondering why you're going with Tyrod, who if you look at his stats from week one against the Bengals, we're really nowhere near what Justin Herbert did against the Super Bowl champions. And he basically said that, you know, yes, Justin came in and gave us a chance to win, but he was very specific to point out that they did not win the game. So I feel like if they had actually won, we might hear something different from Anthony Lynn, but he said he's still a rookie. He's a backup for a reason. He has a lot he needs to learn about this game. Tyrod is a veteran. I've had him before. I know what to expect from him, and I know what he's going to get done. And he said, if Tyrod can't go, I'm perfectly content with Justin. I know we can win with either quarterback. And then when I press him a little bit further and he said, yeah, there is, there's still a lot that he can learn and, and he can learn now, now that he has the perspective of having played, he can learn by watching Tyrod. And then he also said, which I thought was interesting. He said, Tyrod hasn't done anything to lose his job. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't on the field yesterday, which yeah, that's true, but that's also what happens in the NFL and what's already happened to Tyrod in Cleveland when Baker came on. And I think the only difference here is that Baker won. And then I think I, I think the other difference here is that Tyrod is very obviously Anthony Lynn's guy. You know, he mentions he's yeah. he's worked with him previously, and and I think he would have been the one who driven through that signing. And I do think there is an element of that at play here. I mean, I thought his comments actually on Herbert were were poor. I mean, the the suggestion that that it was outrageous that he hadn't won the game when. Let's be honest. I really like hey, Anthony Coach, Lynn. it's your fault, buddy. It, yeah. You know, literally, <laughs> everybody else to blame. You knocked over on fourth and one thought, <laughs> well, you, you basically handed Kansas City the game. And also, you were talking about a team who definitely shouldn't have won against the, Beng- <laughs> the Bengals. Should know incredible recovery from Randy Bullock after tearing his calf muscle in that game. Amazing, wasn't it? To play off the straight night. off the boat in week one. A, a guy misses a chip shot field goal for you to win in week one against the worst team in football last year, one of the worst teams in football. That is where the charges were going into this game. You're playing the Super Bowl champions who have just absolutely blown Houston off the field in week one. And you should win the game. Like you're ahead all the way through the game. So I think the idea that we didn't win the game as if there was an expectation going into it that you would win the game with Tyrod is insane. I mean, the, nobody thought that the Chargers would be close in that game and Justin Herbert was a big reason that they were close. We will be speaking, as always, with Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick a little bit later in the show and asking him exactly what he made of the decision, whether or not he backs him and uh, whether or not he was also at home like the rest of us, screaming at the TV for Anthony Lynn to go for it. Because I don't know about you, would have absolutely loved to see Justin Herbert get the victory his first time out. Let's get into some of the bad then. That was the good and well we'll go from one head coach making some questionable decisions but I think overall someone we like to someone who I'm not so sure we're so keen on Adam Gase I want to talk about Adam Gase I want to talk about the New York Jets and I want to talk about what they're going to do next year when he's not there because I'd be amazed if he's still there at Thanksgiving (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Simon I'm going to come to you first because you have the most Gase experience and maybe at some point have been the biggest gays defender. I think that's a complete fabrication, Will. I'm going to spend yeah. the next five minutes searching WhatsApp <laughs> while you converse and then post yeah. it on the screen. Matt, don't you talk about what you've written about Adam Gaze in WhatsApps, mate. I went through it on Sunday <laughs> and found some awfully bad... Awfully bad looks for you when it comes to... Yeah, I agree. I used to be a fan as well. I can't deny that. I mean, the Gase thing is so interesting. I I remember doing a story for the magazine and spoke to somebody very high up in the Dolphins front office who said that Stephen Ross... And this was a direct quote. Stephen Ross believes he's got his next Don Shula. And we wrote that in the magazine. And I don't even think he got his next David Shula, let alone Don. (laughs) I mean, I watched his press conference yesterday where he said, we need to to take it to hyperdrive. And I was just like, Adam, what's happening, mate? (laughs) I mean, part of me wonders, I think there's a a wider question about, look, the talent isn't great there. And I think Joe Douglas has got a big rebuild job. I think the biggest, most fascinating issue for me is is what's going to happen with Sam Darnold. Because if the Jets end up, you know, Sam Darnold does not seem to be progressing. In that. Greg Cassell absolutely took him apart the other day in terms of his footwork, his ball placement. I mean, a lot of that is coaching. And you have to wonder where he's going in his career because, it, like, like Will says, you know, Thanksgiving doesn't seem that far off and it doesn't look like he's going to make it. And who's going to even hire him as a coordinator? I mean, you're thinking kind of position coach at this point. 
I have no idea what's going on in New York, and I would be significantly concerned about the future of Sam Darnold. It really doesn't help Darnold that they just don't have depth or talent at receiver right now. I mean, a lot of their receivers are hurt. They didn't have Jamison Crowder against the Niners. They won't have Brashad Perriman next week, and the tight ends really didn't do much for them. And then second-round pick rookie Denzel Mims, receiver that they did pick in the draft, he's also been injured. So I think as we were talking about the number one receiver thing earlier, I mean, letting go of Robbie Anderson to go to the Panthers, that was just not a good decision when you need to be providing your rookie quarterback with as many weapons as possible. I mean, that's the whole point. If you have a rookie who's still developing, you have to have pieces around him. So that decision, I'm still questioning that. And especially now that we've seen the struggles that they've had. I mean, it's the antithesis of the Jared Goff situation when we're saying about him being surrounded coaching-wise by the dream scenario. And to be fair, he did start with Jeff Fisher, which is akin to, <laughs> yeah. to this situation. So he's, he's, he's paid his dues, hasn't worse. he? <laughs> but the other thing with Gase is he's, he's such a tool, isn't he, in the press conferences? It's like, you know, we, we move the ball. Are you serious, Adam? You've got literally the worst team in football on the field. You're terrible. You, you was, gave up a third and 31 to a draw yeah. play and a 50-yard yeah. gain, Adam. There's nothing to do with, oh, yeah, we gained some yardage. Ridiculous. I thought it was fascinating when Donald came out and said that he wasn't able to change the play because that was one of the biggest yeah. issues that Ryan Tannehill had when he was in Miami. And it was obvious what should have happened at the weekend. Donald should have there was a massive gap for, for Donald to, to get a first down. And he wasn't able to change out of the play that Gase had sent him to be able to do that. They ended up having to punt. And that happened time and again in Miami. That's just such bad coaching. For a guy, you go back to what happened in Denver and, and the way he was sort of revered by Peyton Manning. And I just think that the backward steps he's taken are... He's almost back in the womb. He's gone so far backwards. The only way you get revered by Peyton Manning is letting Peyton Manning do what Peyton Manning wants to do. Right. So if you're not going to do that with Very anyone true. else, then... Yeah, it's a bizarre, bizarre change for him. Let's talk onside kick coverages, because that's exactly what I thought we were going to talk about on the show we came into today. I like the kick a lot. I think that it's inventive. I think the way that John Fassel got them surrounding the ball as it was going out in that weird little horseshoe before it got to the 10-yard mark helped put the Falcons off. Yeah, probably only ever work once because other teams were now figured it out and the Falcons were stupid. It amazes me that there's still things that you could do in football like after all this time that like surprise people, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, where did that come from? It's so cool. And it's so simple, but you're right. I was going to ask that question. Is it ever going to work again? I, but they did. Breer had a really good history of it that John Fassel actually did it when he was with the Rams with Johnny Hecker actually at AT&T last year and it didn't work. So technically the NFL has now seen that twice, but the fact that it did work this time, it is a good question. Like, you know, our team's going to be practicing for that now and will it work in the future? I mean, it shouldn't work again, but if there is one thing that you should design players around in the NFL, it's incompetent coaching on the other sideline because, frankly, that is 20 out of 32 teams. So, especially with special teams, like, there are so many coaches who clearly don't care at all about special teams. So, it's absolutely the place to do it. But it's good and bad, isn't it? It was really clever. It's nice to see some some innovation and inventiveness for a game that 100 years and yeah, really bad on the other side and kind of. Only there was I a book it, out about that. Hold on, yeah, yeah, if only. I want, if only you could find out. About I was going to transition that in and I thought I can't do that again. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, it was a that's so a, hackneyed. It was a little bit of a tableau to to everything that's happened in Atlanta since since that Super Bowl. You know, it just sums it up. They needed that special teams redemption, though, because those two fake punts were absolutely horrendous. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the first one especially. That was one of the worst throws I've ever seen by a grown man. Let's talk about... Well, this. In fact, Simon, you sent me this one today, and this is your exact wording for it. So I just want you to tell me, what's wrong with B-Flow? I think Matthew should take this, actually, because he is the, he's an even bigger Brian Flores fan than I am, so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with him. I, I think he overperformed to a ludicrous degree last year and has now set expectations that are unfathomable for a team that last year is definitely the most, the least talented NFL roster I've ever seen. And they certainly shouldn't have won the amount of games that they did. You know, they hung with a, a really good Buffalo team in this game, hung with the Patriots. I mean, I thought New England were fairly dominant in that game, but, you know, the way they were in that game improves when you see how well New England played in Seattle. So, 
I don't think there's a lot wrong, but as I said to Sai, I can see a situation where they win two or three games this year just because of how tough their schedule is. I mean, the, the antithesis of, of last year where really, the end of the year, they had an easy run of, of fixtures, which is why both them and the Jets ended last season well. I mean, this is the Jets with Adam Gase, won a lot of games at the end of last season because of the schedule. So I don't think there's a huge amount wrong, but I think you accept, and I, and I hope that the hierarchy in Miami accept, that when they ripped it up, as badly as they did last year, it was a two to three year process. And this is a season where, you know, best case scenario, you know, you win a few games, you get high draft picks from yourself and the Texans, which looks like it could happen. And Tua maybe plays the last four games and shows some signs. And then for me, the big year for B-Floor is, is massively next season. If the Dolphins lose on Thursday, they could go 0-9 to start the season because you look at the schedule, they've, been, they've got Jacksonville Thursday, Seattle, the Rams, the Chargers, 49ers, Denver, it is not an easy schedule. Then they, they have the Jets twice, back-to-back, the Bengals, and then back to the Chiefs, Patriots, the Bills. So I think four or five games maximum for the Dolphins this season in terms of wins. Yeah, the fans were cheering for Tua on Sunday, but I don't think that's a fix here, especially when the defense is struggling the way that it is. So I think you're right, Matthew. I think mm. they wait as long as they can to give Tua some action at the end of the season, and I think it's next year that's the big year for them. I mean, if you play in the Jets back-to-back, just pencil tour in for those two games <laughs> yeah. right now. That, that's a wonderful Honestly. start to his NFL career. On that point, that's one of the games from this weekend. As we get from the good to the bad to the ugly that involved more injuries than any other. But it was an absolute epidemic across the league this weekend. I mean, Caelan, we mentioned that you were there in Chicago to see what happened with Saquon Barkley. And I mean, a team that don't have high hopes or high expectations for this year. And yet still you see the reaction to that. What an impact losing a player of that value can have even to a team who don't expect to win very many games this year. Yeah, I mean, that's the worst news that the Giants could have had all season, I think, because they've just built their team around him completely. Dave Gettleman has, was very deliberate in drafting Saquon Barkley and has been super deliberate in designing everything basically around him, which has proven why that's not really a structurally sound way to go about things just because of the injury risk at that position and, and the short careers there. And I think for Saquon, this is way worse for Saquon as an individual than it is honestly for the Giants because, you know, he's going into 2021 and he's eligible for a second contract for the first time, but now he's coming off an ACL tear and he only had 20 carries this season and had negative yardage on nine of those. So he really didn't get to prove much this season. And I think this injury could really cost him millions of dollars because then you know, he's going to have to prove himself next season coming off an ACL tear. Who knows if he's ever going to return to the same level of play that he was before this injury. Kaylin, firstly, what was more heartbreaking, being there to see Saquon get injured or knowing that your boy Drew Locke was going down on the other side of the country? <laughs> that was really sad. I mean, honestly, it was really hard to keep up with all the injuries. There was actually like a Niners scout seated. He was doing the advance for the Giants because they played the Giants this week. I mean, he was seated a couple of rows down from me and, and we were kind of like tracking the injuries. And Just I mean, they're slowly team... slumping down into his seat. Yeah, he was like, oh. Okay, well, they were carted off, like Solomon Thomas, Nick Bosa, first quarter, like, what is going on? Yeah, so that was crazy. I do obviously sympathise massively with Saquon. I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being a, a, I mean, of benefit is the wrong words, but I think the Giants might find out more about Daniel Jones through this because they kind of have to turn it over to him in a really important year. Mm -hmm. I think Dion Lewis, actually, if... He's the Deion Lewis I saw two years ago. He's still a very, very good player. I mean, the issue for Saquon as well is he can't pass protect and it's never improved since he came into the NFL. So it really limits what the Giants can do. And then you pair that with an offensive line that struggles and a guy who has always been boom or bust. You know, Saquon is, is never going to get you four yards a carry, but he'll average six yards a carry because he'll break off two or three a game if he's if he's really going so I think for the Giants it might benefit them in their long-term planning and I know that's a really crass thing to say but you know I think they'll learn a lot more about Daniel Jones through this and, and potentially it'll be interesting to see how they can diversify their offense now when it isn't all focused around one guy. Outside of that I mean we mentioned Drew Locke I still think we you know I've not been on the Drew Locke bandwagon like some other people on this show, but you, you want to see him out there and you want to see what he can do. And that was the other one that really stood out to me outside of that. Just everyone seemed to lose starters out. You know, it was just absolutely across the league. So many big names went down. I mean, the Drew Lock Carl and Sutton combo for Plata for Denver is, is just brutal. Like in terms of, 
you know, with the 49ers, it's obviously really tough. But for them, this is such a big year for the two of them to kind of come together and start reshaping what that Broncos team is. I think that one hurts a lot as well. And I feel for old white guy head coach Rick Fangio because it doesn't seem like he's had much luck in his first year and a bit as a as an NFL head coach. I think the only silver lining for Broncos fans is that Drew was hurt last season and Vic Fangio said, he told me when I was reporting the story on Drew, he said that he's never seen a player improve more through an injury than Drew Locke. So if Drew keeps that same energy through this injury, maybe we'll see like Drew Locke 3.0 at the end of this. But they're in, they're in bad shape right now. I mean, I think they just, they're expected to sign Blake Bortles. So... Right, good. Uh, that <laughs> truly deserves to be in the ugly category. Uh, and another man who deserves to be in the ugly category. And I have been probably, I would say, this man's biggest defender on the show, but that's really kind of not saying a huge amount. In that <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I thought that he could get a team eight to ten wins in a season. Yeah. But Kirk Cousins right now, just that Vikings team, the defence is a shambles since they've changed so many of their starters out. And then Kirk Cousins just had an awful, awful game this weekend, Simon. I, th- I think people should remember the way they reacted to Kirk Cousins as winning the Super Bowl or the Vikings, uh, the Superdome last year in the playoffs, or the Vikings, as I should say. And think about that when they're talking about Josh Allen. Because again, he is another quarterback where he really needs huge help around him to succeed. And it's similar to what I was, you say. You know, we're having the same conversation about lots of different quarterbacks who ultimately sit somewhere in the middle to lower pack in the NFL. And, you know, I just think that's what, what's happening here. The Vikings have had an incredibly talented team around him for the last few years. Obviously got to the playoffs in, in a couple of those years, but they've reached their ceiling in those years as well. They've never threatened. They got to the NFC title game, I guess, in a couple of years ago, but that wasn't Cousins, was it? That was um, Case Keenum. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I mean, the Vikings are one of those teams now, and I like Mike Zimmer because he's old and white. You know, I think it's, it's refresh time, isn't it? it looks like a, a team that's heading in the wrong direction and probably going to need to bring some new energy into that building after the year. Can I just say that Kirk Cousins at one stage on Sunday was 6 of 19 for 59 yards with three interceptions and a 1.8 quarterback rating, which I think is pretty bad. And I think uh, having been somebody who's thrown three touchdown passes to Mike Tannenbaum's sons uh, at Dolphin Stadium, I'm pretty sure I could have done a, I could have done a better job. Uh, just astonishingly bad. name drop clang I've ever heard. There's no way he can continue playing that bad. He's going to bounce back to like being is he though above he though? or average quarterback but he mm-hmm. does need a better defense I'm not saying that the Vikings are going to be winning a lot of games but I don't think it's possible that Kirk continues to play like he did on Sunday it comes back to the Stefan Diggs point as well about how important it was for him to have that that one two and, and now it is just Thielen who started the game incredibly well and then just I don't think had a catch after the first drive so I just get the feeling it's gone a little bit stale in Minnesota. And and I think you've probably seen the writing on the wall as well. As good as that win was in the Superdome over the last few years on that, really. And sometimes that happens. I don't think Zim is a bad coach. I like Rick Spielman as a GM. But sometimes, you know, get together for a few years in the NFL and it feels like if you don't get to the top of the mountain, it just generally gets a little bit stale. And, and I do feel like that's feels like they, It feels like they've just missed that window. It's just kind of yeah. closed uh, and it's kind of passed now. It's a bit of a problem that they've just given him a massive extension, cousin. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good work, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the things we loved, the things we hated, and some unheralded players from the weekend. But first, we need to take a look at a coach's take on the weekend with ex-tech pads. We're joined by Super Bowl-winning head coach, Brian Billick. Coach, it's um, a bit of a frustrating place to have to start this week, but it's the, the problem that all people are facing right now, and that's, that's injuries in the NFL. You had a couple of very significant ones in your career. I think about Jamal Lewis in 2001, uh, Ray Lewis and his shoulder injury in 2002. How do you deal with it as a coach when you lose a player who is in that very top tier, a leader, one, someone who is a you know, real difference maker? Yeah, it's devastating because you don't just wait for that to happen because you know it will happen. You lay the groundwork during training camp for the players to understand, look, it's going to take all 53 of us and the entire practice squad and probably some guys that aren't even with us right now to accomplish what we want to on the field because we're going to have injuries and you foster that next man up mentality. Now, the fact of the matter is you get there and the next man up just isn't as good. I mean, that's just a fact. You can't give into that, the emotion of it. 
And, and it is something you can maybe rally your team around to a degree, but make no mistake, particularly some of the caliber of players that we're talking about with, with Bosa and Barkley, what they mean to those teams, it's a su- substantial effect on them going forward. Do you back a team like, and I think specifically San Francisco is the obvious one as a Super Bowl contender last year, to be able to get over three, four, five big injuries as they have this week? Well, when you get to a Super Bowl and you go back and you do the postmortem on what happened during the season, for the most part, not taking away anything from the win and, and that you are indeed the Super Bowl champion, you'll look back and see that you stayed relatively healthy, that there was probably some other team that could have challenged you for that spot, except for a couple key injuries. But that's just the game. That's just the way it falls. And so you don't get into it. You don't focus on it. As a coach, there's no purpose. I mean, you may spend 10 minutes feeling sorry for yourself, but then you've got to move on and your team's got to move on. And you've got to be very conscious of the mentality of your team that they don't give in to that self-pity, give in to that, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? You have to fight that almost on a daily basis until you get back on the field and show, yeah, we can we can survive this. It's going to alter what we do, but we can survive this. Leads us quite nicely into a, a recent Super Bowl losing team at the Atlanta Falcons and, and another devastating loss for them, losing a big lead this past weekend against the Dallas Cowboys. Is there something in the suggestion that people have put forward that there is a mental problem with this team that they've almost never got over the 28-3? to I don't put a lot of stock in that. Is it going to leave a mark? Yeah, you better believe it. And for the organization as a whole, and more specifically for the head coach, that something like this lingers. you got to believe that Dan Quinn, you know that ownership, Arthur Blank, you know that Dan had to think back, oh my God, this is the Super Bowl all over. And when a couple of those happen, even though you'd be hard-pressed to quantify, okay, this is what you did or did not do, it's not fair, but that's going to be how it's characterized. And so, unfortunately for Dan Quinn, they can obviously fight their way out of it. But this is going to leave a mark, and if they don't, if they just kind of, you know, flirt around 500, this is going to come up again and may be the deciding factor on whether Dan Quinn stays with Atlanta or not. Now, on um, a conversation that we had last week on the idea of, uh, I think it was around Mike McCarthy last week, how much stock people put into analytics and fourth and one and all of that stuff. We had a really prime example this week in overtime in the Chargers Chiefs game, a chance for a huge divisional win with a young quarterback coming in and everything else that came with that. Anthony Lynn and the team decide not to go for it on fourth and one. What did you make of that decision? Might you have made it differently? Well, let's, let's begin with the fact that we know that looking at these decisions are squarely in the rearview mirror. And it's through the prism of if it worked, you're a genius. If it didn't, you're the village idiot. That goes beyond the critical analysis of was it the right time or was it not the right time to go for fourth and one. I will say this. On the road, John Lynn made the decision for all the right reasons, the way the game had gone, the way his defense had played, the fact that the odds and where you were on the field and what what that would have done for Kansas City certainly all made sense. Having said that, at the end of the day, that's where you look, whether you look at the analytics or it's a a gut feeling, you got to ask yourself, do I really want to give the ball back to Patrick Mahomes and that Kansas City offense? How many times did we see that, even in the playoffs, of them coming back from that deficit? Now, On the flip side of that, if you decide to go for it and you don't get it, we'd be crucifying them right now. How do you go for it on fourth and one when you're going to give the game to the Kansas City Don't you believe in your defense? That's what he would have heard. There would have been any number of those that wanted to critique it that way. Why? Because it didn't work. If he makes it, brilliant, gutsy call. You know, you go back to to, uh, Sean Payton's onside kick in the Super Bowl against the Indianapolis Colts. It worked. It goes down as one of the gutsiest calls in Super Bowl history. Had it not worked and you'd have given the ball back to Peyton Manning on a relatively short field, it would have gone down as the most stupid coaching move in the history of football. So, again, you have to look at this prism of does it work or does it not work. Having said all that I just said, you're right. I I was doing the same thing going, oh, boy this is not going to go well for Coach Lynn. 
there was one I wanted to ask you about the um, the New York Jets because from what we've seen from them the first two weeks, there's a lot of conversation about them being the worst team in football. Obviously, we're only two weeks into the season. We've got potentially a very interesting situation coming up for them with the quarterback that they went and drafted, went and drafted high, gave up a lot for, versus the idea that if they come number one overall and they get a new coach in, there could be someone like Trevor Lawrence, who many think is a generational talent at the top there. If you, are you already thinking about those, those sort of things right now if you're a team builder when you're looking at the situation? And, and what do the Jets need to do to, to turn that around? Yeah, you have to, unfortunately, because that's the nature of the business. Now, will that be with Adam Gase or not? I don't know. He was brought in for a very specific reason. He committed to a first-round pick for him to develop. Uh, so there's, there's a cost that comes with this. I have a book coming out this month called The Q Factor. It examines the process that we use in identifying these quarterbacks, which even in the first round, at best, is 50-50. And we use the 2018 draft that includes Sam Darnold as a backdrop to, okay, let's examine how we evaluated these players, how they were drafted, how they developed, and where they are now by way of a critique of what it is and how we operate this process of selecting an NFL quarterback. And Baker Mayfield, we're still deciding. Sam Darnold, we're still deciding. Josh Allen looks like he's on the positive side and obviously has a great start to 2020. Josh Rosen, already off his teams, off two teams. And then Mar Jackson, you know, the 32nd pick. How about that? The process itself that we use in evaluating this. How, in what world, how do we draft Josh Rosen ahead of Lamar Jackson? How do we take Mitchell Trubisky one and like Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson go to 10 and 12. What, what is that process? And that's exactly what the book is about. And so, yes, the Jets and, and Joe Douglas, who's the general manager who worked for me, that I know he likes Sam Darnold. And what you have to do, the hard thing is look at your quarterback position. One of the hardest things to do is to separate the play of the quarterback from what's going on around him. Is this Sam Darnold? Or is the fact that they're just not a very good football team and have not surrounded him with the, the kind of talent that they need to support him in his growth as a quarterback. I've always said there's, there's two things that get you fired quicker than anything. Taking a first-round quarterback that doesn't pan out, a la Kyle Bowler, and, and that's why I'm sitting here having a lovely conversation with an English <laughs> podcast instead of doing a, a game, coaching a game, or passing on a quarterback when you need one early in the first round when you could have had one and it turns out to be pretty, pretty good, a.k.a. Matt Ryan who Miami passed on because they felt, you know, obviously it came down to their critique of Matt Ryan, which is fair enough, but neither of those stabs are still around. Coach Billick, always a real joy. Uh, Coach Billick joining us in association with X-Tech Pads. Uh, same again next week. We will do it. Good man. Brian Billick uh, talking about the big coaching decisions from this weekend around the NFL. Right, let's talk about the things we loved, the things we hated, and some unheralded players from the weekend. Kaylin, I'll come to you first. What's one thing you loved from this weekend? I love the Vegas Raiders, everything about them. I've always like really been attracted to the Raiders like brand, but it's even, I feel like it's even better. No offense to Oakland, but I feel like it's even better in Vegas. And that was a great win that they had last night. I mean, that was awesome. And I felt like it just showed how well general manager Mike Mayock has started building that team. Like you can see the pieces coming together. Jonathan Abrams is great. I was concerned when he hit that TV thing stand, whatever that was, and he didn't move and they yeah. went to commercial. I was like, what is going on? Is he okay? So that was good that he was fine. Um, so I loved that. And then one thing I forgot to mention about the other thing I loved, which was Justin Herbert, totally forgot to mention this, but I was talking to somebody with an upcoming opponent of the Chargers, and I said, hey, who would you rather play, Tyrod Taylor or Justin Herbert? And he was like, uh, after yesterday, Tyrod, for sure. Just going to leave that there. Lovely stuff. Matthew? <laughs> I mean, it, it follows on from Curlin's. I mean, I, and this is, I feel like I've knocked off a few of my greatest hits in terms of things <laughs> it really that I love and, love and hate. But I thought it was an exhibition in play calling from John Gruden last night. And, and I think that... He didn't get anywhere near enough credit for some of the offensive scheming last year. The stuff he does with Darren Waller is just sensational. It's great to watch the way he moves him around. And it was sensational offensive scheming. And, and I think, you know, him and Sean McVeigh, who's a little bit of a protege for him, 
have, have really shone in that department over the first two weeks of the season. Caelan, that's how you pronounce protege where Matthew's from, just so you know. <laughs> Simon. <laughs> He's not a player who plays for Florida State. He's an, it's an actual guy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was going to say John Gruden, but one of the plays that I thought was amazing was the touchdown to the fullback, the speed release that oh. Darren Waller had, which essentially drew the both the safety and the corner out and just allowed the, was a fantastic call. So good. Um, so I'm going to choose Bill O'Brien taking a knee before the game. We talked about it in the first show that we felt like we needed a white, uh, an important white player to take a knee. And actually what we got was a white coach kudos to Bill O'Brien for doing that because I don't think that was easy especially in a town like Houston and especially in a team that was previously owned by Mr Bob McNair so uh, kudos to Bill O'Brien I think it's probably the best decision he's ever made since he went to the Texans uh, uh, Wonderful I, I want to know Sherry if he's doing his greatest hits we're going to go to things we hated Matthew are you going to talk about the play call for the Patriots on fourth and one last night because they didn't go for a quarterback bootleg near the goal line so we can really tick off every <laughs> I mean, single one of your favourites It probably works I mean I always think it works less with the, the big win with the quarterback bootleg is when you call it with like Peyton Manning because literally nobody sees it coming and it's a guaranteed touchdown every time no but it is going to be coaching related again I mean it's just the analytics conversation in the NFL frustrates me because I very much sit in the middle of it in that I don't believe completely that you should listen to the analytics but I also don't believe you should be completely old school and conservative in your thinking I think what I hear is and it's something I've said for a while is the lack of true head coaches in the NFL and being a head coach on the sideline during the game should be analysing the game, understanding the game situation and making good decisions because of that. And I think we saw a lot of examples this weekend, uh, Mike McCarthy in particular with the ridiculous fake punts. Then Anthony Lynn, like, you know, if, if all of us in a WhatsApp chat can say, you should definitely go for this because you know what's going to happen if you don't, then Anthony Lynn as a head coach on the sideline should be able to do that as well. You know, I saw a stat and it really irritated me that said, oh, Lynn made the right decision because it was this percentage. No, rubbish. Yeah, He had Patrick Mahomes on the other side who then drove down the field against a great kicker. And what happened is what everybody with a brain could predict would happen. So I think the nuance of that debate or the lack of nuance of that debate irritates the life out of me. If it hadn't been for the fact that you've got the robot that is Justin Tucker in the league, Harrison Bucker is the best kicker outside of Baltimore in the league. And so somebody else who tweeted us going, yeah, but it's miraculous for a kicker to make three kicks from that distance in a row. No, it's not. He keeps doing it all of the time. So you've got to expect it and you've got to be aggressive against it. He also kicked a 71 yarder at halftime. You know, that 58 yarder was essentially a chip shot. Uh, Simon? The Lions are so abject. And I think there was a stat that just stood out for me, which kind of underlined why they were so abject, which is that they um, they are now the first team in NFL history to lose four straight games in which they've had a double-digit lead. And to me, that is an astonishingly bad coaching job. They're now 0-11 in their last 11 games. And if Adam Gaze is not going to get to Thanksgiving, Matt Patricia may not even get to week five. I don't know why anyone was hyping the Lions. I never understood that. I didn't believe that for a second. And actually, the NFC North as a whole last year was one of the more competitive divisions in football. And this year, it just really doesn't appear. It's like the Packers and nobody else. So that's kind of interesting. But I do think, I mean, there was just a report, I think it was yesterday, some more Lions drama that Patricia didn't want Jeff Okuda at three. He actually wanted Auburn defensive tackle Derek Brown and Patricia, he denied it. But I'm always inclined to sort of believe those types of reports because typically they're true. And, you know, I've been on the other side reporting those before and, and you feel like they are accurate. And so if it's true that there is that internal division, even between Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia, I mean, that's really telling as well as to what's going on inside that franchise right now. Uh, and let's get into an unheralded player. I'll come straight back to you, Simon. Who's your unheralded player of the week? Have we had Curlin's uh, class yet? No. I didn't oh, have we go. not? Sorry. <laughs> no. I got so caught up in Harrison <laughs> Bucker. I got so caught up. Kaylin. Because you've got I'm so much like, hate in your heart, Kaylin. I have so much hate. So much hate. I was curious. I don't know if this is hate, but where is Rob Gronkowski? Two catches for 11 yards on four targets in the two games played so far. Arians in his post-game presser or some at some point this week has said, you know, they're not going to force the ball to him. He is contributing in run blocking, which is true and fine, but it's also a sign that he's just not getting open. If Tom isn't throwing the ball his way, he's not open. So I'm wondering 
when are we going to see Gronk? Are we ever going to see Gronk? Or did this year off really? It was heartbreaking to watch again. It, it, I mean, it, it really pains me. And his run blocking was good. It pains his, you. His, his pass blocking <laughs> was atrocious as well. Like, I've watched that game closely and then watched a bit of All-22. It's sad. I mean, I, not to praise the Patriots, but... The, the oh, trade, oh, well, never. The, the fourth round pick that they got for him is going to go down as one of the great trades. It's painful. It's really painful to watch how bad he looks. Now let's talk about some unheralded players. Uh, Simon, who would you like to pick? I chose Jamal Adams last week and probably could have chosen. There was a point in that game on Sunday night where Jamal Adams essentially just took over. But I, I'm actually going to go with Kenny Vaccaro, the Titan safety, who has found a perfect scheme fit. It sort of looked a little bit out of place in New Orleans. Uh, he had 11 tackles, a sack, two pass breakups, two tackles for loss and two pressures. It was a tremendous performance uh, and they really needed it uh, against a really feisty Jacksonville team. I thought Vaccaro is playing really good football. I'm going to go to Kayla next so I don't forget her. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to pick Darnell Mooney, the Bears receiver, who's a fifth round pick out of Tulane. He is kind of becoming what I think they wanted from Anthony Miller, but Anthony Miller has never really proven himself. He, I mean, Anthony, I think, had two drops on Sunday. Darnell Mooney, Mitch connected with Mooney for a touchdown. That was actually really impressive, both for Mooney and for Mitch. For It was kind of a 50-50 ball in the end zone. He was covered by Giants cornerback Corey Ballantyne, and Mitch sort of stepped up in the pocket, stepped back. And I think maybe two years ago or last year, he would have tried to scramble for a couple of yards and just bail on the play. But he kind of pointed to his guy and was like, all right, I'm putting it up for you. And it was an ugly ball, but it doesn't matter because he found him and it was really impressive. And Darnell has been getting a ton of action. And I think he's really impressed Bears coaches. I love that Kaylin is on shortened first name terms with Mitch. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> MVP I, mean, Mitch. I can never keep track if he's Mitch or Mitchell. I feel like it yeah. changes every year. The coaches yeah. call him Mitchell, but I don't know. I just don't really like that. As with his play, just completely inconsistent <laughs> what his first name right. is going to be. Hey, oh. <laughs> Matthew, take us home. Tristan Wirfs. I mean, I watched the Tampa game very closely, but he had a really good game. And I think we were talking last week about how important it is that they find some offensive lineman, obviously a first-round pick. And I think Sai had said, had some struggles early in camp, was really impressed with him, particularly in the run game. As I watched that game quite closely, made some notes. Gronk, terrible, worths, really good. So, really yeah, that was... depth analysis. He was exceptional. And, yeah, if you're going to mention one more in the books, Lavonde David is just a king. That's all I've got to say. Great. Th- those first-round tackles, actually, Mackay Beckton had a really good game. Austin Jackson's been really good for the Dolphins. And actually, Andrew Thomas is the one guy that struggled. But the three of the four have been really, really strong so far. Which is rare as well. They often struggle, don't they? At the mm-hmm. start, tackles in particular, one of those positions. So... Yeah, that, that was really notable. Maybe we should just never have a preseason. Guys, good fun as always. Top work. Check out everything we're doing on social at Gridiron, at UK Gridiron. You can find our waiver wire pickups on there as well on the YouTube channel. Uh, and you can find, we'll have some cuts going out from the chat with Brian Billick, some extra stuff that maybe didn't make it onto the podcast. So check it out on there and all the stuff we'll be doing over the weekend as well. Look out for Kalen's piece on Justin Herbert. That'll be coming out later this week. And uh, bye, Matthew book because it's very good there you go Thanks. is that your first review <laughs> yeah, I've had that's, it, I've had. that's harsh mate I, I, I wouldn't take that Just, I'm really upset <laughs> I'm kidding it's it, Matthew plug it and tell everyone where I can get it no any given Sunday the NFL's 100 year history in 20 games I'll send you a copy by the way Kellen if you send me your address um, oh yeah that'd be great it came out last week for a decent part of last week, the best seller on Amazon in the history of sports category. So yeah, buy it and learn about the history of this great game. There we go. It's I'm sure thick as well. Look how thick it is. There's also like I mean, a hundred interviews of it's which how many did I tell you were Hall of Famers? Say over fifty Hall of Famers. Thirty-three wow. Hall of Famers. You told me. Yeah. So uh, so thank you very much for listening and watching. This has been the Gridiron Show. Mm-hmm.